Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Hi, everyone. First, before starting the show, I just want to apologize for some audio issues. I did not have my mic for this episode, and there seems to be an aggressive group of birds lurking outside of my window. So (laughs) apologies for that. I assure you the episode is worth bearing with the bird chirping. With that caveat, let's get into it. Today on the podcast, we have Elliot Green. Elliot is an associate professor in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. He's a political scientist whose research examines ethnic politics and the political economy of development, and he focuses on the area of sub-Saharan Africa. Elliot's just written a great new book called Industrialization and Assimilation, about how industrialization affects identity and ethnic change across the world. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Elliot Green, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Curtis. Great. So just diving right in, this is an expansive book. It's about a quote-unquote big question, a big topic, how industrialization and urbanization change the way human beings situate ourselves in the world, change the way we see who we are, who we identify with, who we value. It spans across pretty much all regions of the world and across time. And just in a nutshell, I guess the main argument is that, and I'll quote here, industrialization creates incentives for individuals to re-identify ethnically and assimilate from small, more narrowly defined rural tribal identities to larger, more urban-focused ethnic groups, and that this process is a consequence of the declining economic importance and control over rural land. So starting there, as I said, it's a big topic. It's been written about a lot before by some big names like Gellner and Marx and you know Fukuyama and Eugene Weber, to name a few. Do you want to start by maybe laying out the Marx-Gellner take and then laying out your main argument and how you maybe differ from or add to these other guys? Sure. Thanks, Curtis. And thanks again for inviting me on. This is really a nice opportunity to chat about the book. As regards the, the argument, the basic way to do this is take a step back and think about why do we have differing levels of ethnic diversity across the world, right? And the basic idea is that historically, especially in the pre-modern period, we would think that ethnicity and ethnic identities are attached according to people's livelihoods. The idea that, you know, as an Africanist, the idea that certain people are specialized in certain kind of crop production or livestock production. Some people are farmers, some people are pastoralists. And so the speciality that people have in sort of the rural economy, a pre-modern economy, is generated ethnic identities. And so, you know, especially in areas, especially tropical areas, areas closer to the equator, where there's greater access to food, those are historically the areas that have the highest level of ethnic diversity because we have a large variety of crops and, and livelihoods that people have. So that's the sort of the setting the scene, as it were. And then we get starting especially in the 19th century and up to the present day, we start to see the the beginnings of an industrial capitalist, but especially industrial economy. And what does that mean? It basically means that these livelihoods that people had before that are 
where they had again their ethnic identities attached to their livelihoods, right? Those livelihoods kind of cease to exist effectively. As people move to cities, they leave their agricultural specialities behind and they, they eventually become, you mentioned Marx and Gellner, they both use very similar language. They talk about effectively like the floating army of workers, of industrial workers. Marx would call that the proletariat, right? Everybody becomes effectively the same in terms of their skills, right? Previously, they had these ethnically special skills. Now they basically are just part of this floating army of workers. And so in that sense, they form new identities right, in this industrial landscape. And those identities are, are much broader than they used to be before. So in that sense, people are voluntarily deciding to identify with broader ethnic groups. Now, Marx is really the first person to write about this in the 19th century. He talked about classes. And then Gellner comes along, Ernest Gellner comes along in the late 20th century, and he talked about nations. But if you substitute the words for each other, they're saying the same thing. It's, again, based on this idea that the specialized livelihoods of the pre-modern economy have been lost in the modern industrial world, and people identify with these broader groups. And that process of identification is a consequence of industrialization. And I guess this is more for me, but several people, David Layton and others, have labeled Gellner's argument as functionalist is what they say. Do you think that's a fair label or not? Oh, I do. I agree with David on that point. I think that part of the issue is the way that Gellner, yeah, he basically he ascribed agency to the broad process of industrialization. I mean, Marx has the similar sort of problem. And, and I think what's interesting about both Marx and, and Gellner in this sense is they have they're sometimes not very clear in the language they use. I find that's probably more so for Marx and Gellner. What I call in the book, I think they have a top-down and they also have a bottom-up model by which these processes work. I mean, the, the Marxist idea is very famous, the idea that sort of the, the bourgeoisie are creating different classes, right? Sort of they're deliberately creating the proletariat, et cetera. And the bottom-up model is that the, the proletariat identify as a member of a certain class voluntarily. They do that themselves without anybody telling them to do so. Gellner suffers from the similar sort of problem, but it's a bit clear in Gellner that, again, people are given incentives to identify a certain way and they go ahead and do that. And again, Gellner also does go ahead and talk about national elites that are sort of using schooling and national policies, government policies to sort of force people to identify a certain way. But there's definitely that bottom-up process, which is there too. And that's, that's the focus in the book for me, is really the identifying the fact that people are identifying according to a certain ethnic identities, but they're not being forced to do so. And in fact, in many cases, they are doing so despite state efforts to have them identify otherwise. So you use urbanization in much of the book as a proxy for industrialization, which I think tracks for most places and most times in history. But you know, you're, I know, an Africanist at heart. And so you're well aware that in Africa today, there's very rapid urbanization, right? Most rapid in the world. And it's happening without industrialization, as Jed Webb and, and others have written about. And I think Danny Roderick even writes about premature de-industrialization. This, to me, is one of the biggest conundrums about African urbanization today, right? It's happening at, I guess, number one, much lower levels of income than has historically been the case. And it's happening without industrial job creation. And I know, you know, Ken Opalo, for example, has written even about, quote unquote, ruralization of African cities, because something like 25 percent of Africa's urban population is still engaged in agriculture, right? They're still farmers. So given your book's thesis, what to you are the greatest implications if this urbanization without industrialization trend we're seeing right now 
continues over the course of this century in Africa. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so, yeah, historically, meaning in the sort of non-African context, historically, that we would say, you're right, that industrialization and urbanization would go hand in hand. One of the historical examples I focus on on the book is from mid-20th century Turkey, which I think is a clear example of that phenomenon. But you're right, late 20th century, the last 50 years or so, that has increasingly been obvious to scholars that we can see an urbanization proceeding without industrialization. And so, yes, there are sections of the book where I really do use urbanization as a proxy for industrialization. But you're right, in some cases, that's not, they are not the same thing, and we should be careful to distinguish them. So the African example where I do show that I think industrialization has proceeded, and this is the case where they do go hand in hand, is in Botswana. And I mentioned that in the book as a really interesting example. And it's an example that a lot of Africanists know, and some people have written about as a successful case of industrialization in Africa. But it's interesting, when I was doing the making a decision on what to put on the cover of my book, I, I put a cover of people working in a diamond processing factory in Habaron in Botswana. And I did some research about, at least for academic books, and I could not find a single academic book that had a picture of the Botswana diamond industry on it, which I find striking. I mean, I think it's, again, it's, as I said, it's well known among Africanists. It's for 30 to 40 years had the highest GDP per capita growth in the entire world, higher than China or Singapore or South Korea. But it's also had, you know, the highest urbanization rate in the world. It started out, you know, the World Bank data on urbanization goes back to the 1950s. I think in 1950 or so, Botswana had, I think, literally the fifth lowest urbanization level in the entire world. It was something like 4% urban, so 96% of people living in the countryside. And nowadays, it's above 60%, so you know, incredibly rapid levels of urbanization. So on the one hand, yes, we have urbanization without industrialization in some parts of Africa. In other parts, it's not true. I mean, I think we do see that, yeah, Botswana, we can talk about that in South Africa as well, by the way, right? But you're right, there's other parts of Africa where those have become disassociated. And I think one of the things, again, I talk about this in the case of Uganda, which is, again, not urbanizing as rapidly as Botswana or other parts of Africa, but we do see, we certainly see a lot of urban growth, and we do see urbanization in parts of Africa. But again, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this as well, that you go to these big cities in African countries, which have very rapidly growing populations. And when you get to Talking with people who live in those cities, it's effectively this old story of having one foot in the city, one foot in the countryside, right? So you have this idea that, yes, they might be living in Kampala or Nairobi or Lagos, but they still have those links back home. And back home may not be a place where they actually were born and raised. Back home meaning where their parents are from or even their grandparents, but they still, they might live in the city, but they might not necessarily identify as urbanites. And this, this by the way, this also still applies to to Botswana, I remember talking to a, a pastor of a church, I think a Protestant church in Habaron, and he said the number of funerals he did was far, far lower than the number of weddings, right? So people would come, they live in Habaron, they get married, they live there, but when they got sick and when they died, they went back home. The bodies went back home. And again, when I say back home, it's sometimes places that are people not even have lived in. It's just where their ancestors are from, right? So there's still this rural-urban connection, and that's Something that people have chatted about in Botswana, they feel like there is this new anthropologist and others said we do have perhaps a new generation or two of people who really do feel like they're urbanites, right? Who are living in cities and identify as urbanites in the way that Western developed democracies in, in Europe, North America, we'd say, you know, people from 
London, New York, Toronto, they're actually from that city, right? But, you know, these countries like Canada, US, UK have taken decades or a century to reach that level where people really do identify as living in that city. Whereas we have people in African cities who live there, but they might not identify as, as living there and they still have that one foot back in the countryside, which in some cases, as you know, in some cases we have urbanization. But we also have cases of de-urbanization in Africa or de-urbanization because the only reason people can live in cities is when there's food, food supply that's available to them. So the case that, again, I know you know this, the case of Zambia in 1980s, 1990s is a clear case of de-urbanization. People moved back to the countryside. We still saw urban growth rates. It's just that we saw rural growth rates that were higher than urban growth rates, right? So that was the case where, yeah, people you know, had that one foot in the countryside and they went back to the countryside when the food disappeared in the cities. And so I think that's always that constant struggle, especially among the poor, African poor, the urban poor is, you know, if I don't get that job and I start running out of food, then at least I can go back to the land of my ancestors. So as I said, that's where you can see urbanization without industrialization. You can see that lack of job security, the lack of industrial jobs can lead to that having one foot in, in both doors. I was going to bring this up because that was my reading when I read your South Africa case. And I think you talked about there were fixed contracts and other things that the white elites and the owners of the mines used to make sure that there wasn't this broader identity of broader black South African identification and solidarity. And one of the things I was going to bring up is this experience of de-urbanization. And, you know, you mentioned the case of Zambia. So do you think this experience of rapid urbanization on the one hand, and then sort of collapsing as it did with mining in the Zambian copper belt and having to de-urbanize, as you said, do you think that in essence makes rural identities in Africa like stickier today than in other places, almost like a form of insurance, you could say. They keep their rural identities and connections intact in case of another de-urbanization crisis hits. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think that's the, you know, we've seen growth rates in Africa on and off for a few decades now, and we see a rising middle class, but there's still this sense of insecurity and vulnerability, I think, to economic decline, which was in many cases not that far in the past of having severe economic decline. And so I think that's very normal a process. And I think that's something that you may have observed had there been good quality you know, social science and surveys being done in 19th century Europe, I think we could have observed the same thing. And I think it's, a, you know, once you reach a certain level of income and certain level of security, where people realize that actually this is stable, we are going to continue to get access to food. We don't need to worry about maintaining links to the countryside. But that is, again, I think that's a slow process. And I think that's something that is happening in places like Botswana and, and South Africa. But again, even in those societies, we still have those linkages back to the countryside. And that will take some time to erode completely. So I mentioned in most of Africa, urbanization is occurring at way lower levels of income per capita compared to historical urbanization in other regions. So one of the places in Africa, at least among the bigger countries, one of the places where this trend is not happening is Kenya. Kenya, relative to incomes, uh, the World Bank says is actually under-urbanized. I think it's at just under 30% urbanized. And this is pretty unique for the region. So what's your mental model for what's going on in Kenya? I mean, the two areas in Africa which have the highest level of urbanization is sort of coastal West Africa and Southern Africa, right? And the opposite, I think, is true for the areas that have the lowest levels are Central and Eastern Africa in particular, right? I think the lowest level of urbanization in the world last time I checked was Burundi. Uganda is one of the lowest as well. In general, the whole Central African, East African area has low levels of urbanization. I mean, 
I'll answer your question as best as I can, but I also refer back to, I mean, the country that I know the best in that region is Uganda. And Uganda has this history of, it does not have a history of famines because they have very high quality land. So people can grow food, except there has been some food insecurities in Northeast Uganda, which is the area that has the worst land. So people you know, will retreat to the countryside and or rather they won't move to the cities in part because they can make a living they can feed themselves, but also make a living as, as farmers. And I think that you could say, as regards to the case of Kenya in particular, right, that, again, you have relatively high quality land. People still are able to work on this land. And the debates in Kenya, again, I, going back to the examples I've seen in Uganda, there, there's this ongoing need for economic security, but also this traditional idea of how you accumulate assets is through owning rural land. Right. And I mentioned this, this is actually the first page of the book. I talked about the inspiration for this book in many ways came from a discussion with Andrew Mwenda, who's a very famous Ugandan journalist, and talking about a particular, I think, army general or minister of the government who had acquired lots of power and money and ended up plowing that money back into buying land in rural western Uganda. And I asked him, why do you think he did that? Why didn't he go off and buy a, a villa in the French Riviera or something like that? And he said, because this is an agrarian society. We not only live in the countryside, but rural land is valuable. And that's how, you know, traditional assets, asset accumulation is via rural land. And you have, when you know, in that long history, especially in Kenya, you have this long history of conflicts over land ownership. So in other words, becoming rich, becoming powerful in many ways is still tied up with owning rural land. Of course, it's very valuable to own real estate in Nairobi as well. But the point is that part of this is a cultural phenomenon whereby people still value rural land perhaps more than they do value it economically. But these are, these are sticky, as you said, use the word sticky a minute ago. These are sticky sort of phenomena. They're sticky ideas that people have about security. The fact that you can still, you know, in countries which are, you know, historically very poor, that you want to control rural land in part because if everything else falls apart, you can still go back and farm that land and have food for your family. So again, Kenya, high levels of income, but still stuck, uh, not stuck, but they still have, you know, relatively low levels of urbanization. I think that's definitely part of the story. So zooming out is a more, I guess, subtle, implicit reading of your argument in the book that, you know, if a goal of humanity is to foster cooperation on ever greater scales, we should all be pro-industrialists. Well, I, I talk about that at the end of the book, that we have this idea, I, part of this is related to discussions around climate change, right? So people think industrialization equals pollution, which, you know, historically is true. But we do have a lot of discussion nowadays about sort of green, sustainable development and working on levels of industrialization that promote uh, green energy. But I also say in the book that, you know, there's people like the South Korean economist, Hajun Chang, who's written about this, the idea that we have this trend, I think, in development studies going back maybe 30, 40, even 50 years, whereby we sort of moved. It used to be that development equals industrialization. It used to be meaning like post-World War II modernization theory, 1940s, 50s, 60s, that was the idea. And then that sort of, we moved on from that to sort of thinking about individual welfare and, and providing human development, which includes education and, and health, of course. And there's nothing to say that that's wrong. It's just about how do we prioritize what and how do we achieve those goals as best as we can. I think Chang's point is that, you know, talking about human development without industrialization, I think he said, was like development without development or Hamlet without the prince. The idea is that how you achieve those goals is you achieve them historically through 
industrialization. So, you know, I think that's that's a good point. And I think that, you know, something that economists continue to bang on about is that we see countries generating high levels of prolonged high levels of growth are the ones that have an industrial economy, unless you are lucky enough to sit on huge amounts of oil reserves like they do in various parts of the Middle East. But other than that, if you're unlucky, then you need to generate industrialization. I mean, to take another African example, which is still in the early stages of this process, is Ethiopia, right, which has been generating Nigeria to some degree as well, right? We have a lot of small-scale manufacturing and, and industrialization taking place in arguably the two most important countries in Africa, certainly the two most populous countries in Africa. And I think that those countries are showing how it is possible to generate poverty reduction through industrialization on, on a large scale. Botswana, a country which is a fraction of the population of either Nigeria or Ethiopia, but it's still the same, effectively the same story, whether it's Botswana on the, on the one hand and Ethiopia and Nigeria on the other. And I guess because you mentioned growth, so I, I guess just a more fundamental question, could it really be economic growth writ large rather than industrialization per se? Because this this Maybe to some, this seems like a trivial distinction, but I wonder if in a place, for example, like India, that has seen pretty rapid economic growth over the last few decades, but it's mainly been growth based in the service sector, not on huge amounts of industrialization. I wonder if India serves as a case that goes against your thesis. Or I guess you could argue that India may actually go in favor of your thesis. They've experienced all this service-oriented growth and yet still have elected a hugely popular but very divisive Hindu nationalist or something. I might be answering the question for you, but what would you say to that? Yeah. The one thing to say is, well, when I write about industrialization in the book, of course, I am talking about manufacturing is absolutely part of that story. But in many ways, what I'm really referring to in, in terms of the theory going back to this discussion around Marx and Gellner, but also talking about the examples I, I look at, in many ways, how I conceptualize industrialization and how it makes a difference in terms of people's identification is really not so much what it is, but what it isn't. In other words, what it isn't is living in the countryside and working in agriculture, right? That's in some ways what industrialization isn't. It's pulling people out of these traditional livelihoods, which I talked about, pulling people out of agriculture, pulling people out of living in these small hamlets or villages and moving them into cities. In some ways, it doesn't matter whether it's the service economy or it's the manufacturing or construction, which is generating this change. It's more about the fact that they're being pulled out of the rural economy. So I mean, I go back to Botswana, a large chunk of people work in the service sector. A lot of people work in, you know, the, so many malls around Habarone and other parts of Botswana. There's a very large service economy. It's very unequal society. And so a lot of people are working in the service economy, servicing the rich, right? But they're still not working in agriculture. And that's that point that that shift out of agriculture, which is so important. So I think that, you know, we have, a, whether it's manufacturing or service economy, it's generating the same effects. I mean, in terms of growth, I think low-income countries, industrialization and growth go very much hand in hand. In high-income countries, those two start to break apart. I think I, I think I showed, so one of the the major measures I use in terms of cross-national data on industrialization is carbon emissions per capita. And carbon emissions are, very, I think, a very good measure of, of industrialization. There's other measures, too, like electricity consumption or cement production, which is a great measure as well, because everybody in the world produces cement. But the growth 
that I show, I think I, I have a scatter plot in the book where I show growth against carbon emissions. And yes, for the low-income, middle-income countries, it's a very tight relationship, but it starts to fall apart for rich countries. And that's because we have the increasing amounts of green energy and in rich countries, which means the emissions are going down, but growth is continuing. So those two tend to split apart. So it depends on what part of the world you're talking about. So just summing up, for you, there's nothing fundamentally different about an Indian individual working in a call center or business outsource processing center or IT in a city, and then on the other side, an Indian individual working in a factory in a city. They're kind of fundamentally inducing the same type of identity shift. That's correct. Yeah. Again, as long as they feel like they're able to leave the countryside and, and part the, the kind of people you're talking about are the kind of people who will be not interchangeable, but they'll have similar educational backgrounds, I think. That's the interesting thing is that you're seeing people looking on the job market, whether it's in construction or especially higher end formal job creation, whether that's in the sort of blue collar or white collar. But the point is that in many developing countries, those are the same sort of people. So just moving to one of your case studies, Turkey, in this case study, you trace both the Kamalist assimilation policies under Ataturk that seemingly spurred identification with the Turkish nation, as well as the non-assimilation of the Kurds in Turkey. And, you know, Turkey has been in the news recently with Erdogan being reelected to the presidency last month. You don't really discuss the recent Erdogan years much in your case study, but Turkey under Erdogan, it seems to have become sort of re-tribalized in a way, or at least re-religified, if I can use the term. And we can say similar things perhaps about the U.S. under Trump. And, you know, we talked about India under Modi just a while ago. How do these more recent trends of increased polarization and re-tribalization, which you do discuss in your book, how do they fit into your overall argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right to point out the fact that I think what's happening in, in Turkey right now is, to some degree, a religious phenomenon. I mean, we also, I mean, we can separate different phenomena. There's democratic backsliding that's taking place, whether it's under Trump or, or Modi or Erdogan or, or various other contexts. We also see the increased, in some cases, the increased use of religion in politics. And that's certainly true in India, and I think to some degree in Turkey and the U.S. as well. But then we have this separate phenomenon whereby, you know, we have the story that I'm trying to tell in the book, which is about how industrialization will generate these broader processes of identity formation. And I think it's important to keep these things different because I think we have this process. One of the things I talk about in the book is the way in which we have assimilation. There's interesting variation in Turkey, 20th century Turkey. I should mention to the, the listeners why I'm mentioning Turkey in the first place is, is not only as a qualitative case study, but also quantitative case study. Turkey used to have censuses every five years, which asked people about their mother tongue or ethnic identification. And that continued from 1935 to 1965. And after 1965, Turkey has continued to have censuses, but they haven't asked people, or rather they haven't recorded data on ethnic identification in the way that they used to before. So that's why I focused on that period in particular. And during that period, you definitely saw a lot of variation in the degree to which people started to identify more as Turkish in some areas than others. And that was correlated with levels of, of urbanization, such that increasingly urban areas of Western Turkey, especially, started to see more assimilation into identifying as Turkish from these areas that you know, used to have more ethnic minorities. 
the parts of eastern Turkey, especially the Kurdish areas, are the areas that didn't really assimilate that much. And I think that's because they didn't really see a lot of industrialization and, and urbanization in those areas. Again, Turkey, like other countries, has that overlapping degree of linguistic on the one hand and religious identities on the other. So that's where it becomes complex. There was, I mentioned, I think it's called the Dersim Rebellion that happened in the late 1930s. The Turkish state crushed, I think just after Ataturk died, they crushed a rebellion in eastern Turkey very violently, to the violently to the point where that part of Turkey is still the least populated and has the lowest population density of any part of Turkey today. But that was partially because it was Kurdish, but also because it was from this Alevi sect of Islam. So that's that's where things become a bit complex in terms of identifying which types of identity, where do we simulation and where do we see increased salience? And I think Turkey, like India and like the US, but especially like India, we have these overlapping religious and ethnic identities, which complicate the, the story a bit. Okay, so one of your conclusions is that government policies of nation building, like mass education and imposed languages, they mostly fail to assimilate. But if industrialization in a country is especially government driven, this kind of by your book, it's basically a form of government led nation building, right? And the reason I ask is just before reading your book, I was reading this other book by Stephen Kotkin called The Magnetic Mountain. And it's on Stalin's rapid industrialization drive in the 1930s in the Soviet Union. And he did this largely by building new industrial cities. And I guess unlike the story that Eugene Weber tells of turning peasants into Frenchmen in France via mass schooling and military recruitment, Stalin transformed Russian serfs into Soviets, and, and I think much more rapidly than in France, through the building of new industrial cities and resettling a bunch of serfs from the countryside into these urban factories. So my question is, to the extent that government policy focuses its nation-building efforts on industrialization, as in the Soviet Union, it could actually be effective. Is that right or, or no, in your estimation? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. So there's definitely a strong correlation, I think, between countries or governments who industrialized, who are promoting industrialization, and also who are promoting strong nation-building policies, right? And so very proactive governments in that sense. And certainly, I think Stalin fits into that category, absolutely. The idea that he was promoting this heavy-scale industrialization in the USSR and then also promoting nation-building in a very strong, violent way, either forcing people large populations, displacing them to other parts of the country or just massacring them outright. That's often the case historically. And interesting to think about the differences, though. I think there's one case where we can think about it just in Russia. There was that period before the revolution under the imperial regime, under the czars, and there was some degree of industrialization, not as much as other parts of Europe, but there was industrialization taking place. And the one place that was really taking place was in, in Ukraine. And what is now Ukraine? And interesting, the evidence, I do talk about this a little bit in the book, and there's evidence that these areas that were industrializing in the Ukraine, the Donbass area, there was some evidence that people from obviously other parts of Russia were moving there for work, but also there was people within Ukraine who were moving there who might have identified historically as Ukrainians, but once they moved into those industrial areas and started working in the in manufacturing and in industry, increasingly identified as, as Russian, actually, at that point. And that there, of course, there was some attempts at top-down nation building under the czars, but nothing like it was under under Stalin in terms of the violence and sort of the very strong, heavy hand that the government had. So there's an interesting variation there within the Russian context. There's also 
I mentioned you, uh, Turkey before, the evidence from Turkey is that there was a heavy hand of nation building, I think, in the 1930s. I mentioned the Dersim Rebellion and the response to that. And we had this very strong militaristic response to Kurdish resistance in various parts of Turkey. And that's in the 1930s, 1940s. After World War II, the Marshall Plan comes in. And that's when really Turkish industrialization really kind of takes off after 1945, especially late 40s into the 50s. Huge increase in number of tractors. The Americans are donating a lot of tractors to Turkey. It increases exponentially. We see a mass scale urbanization and industrialization. And, that, and that's actually a point when the government starts to become a little bit less top down, a little bit less heavy handed. Whereas Turkey has, I think, its first ever change of regime in a multi-party election. New party comes to power. And there's a case where actually industrialization and nation building don't go hand in hand. I think there's a case where the attempts at top-down nation building seem to have failed and caused a backlash before. And now, instead, the government's becoming much more hands-off. But there's actually evidence from the at least the census data that I saw that there's more assimilation taking place. So, yes, a lot of times Stalin, sort of heavy nation building, heavy industrialization, very autocratic those things kind of go hand in hand in many cases, but not always. And that's interesting to see the variation. And obviously, the reason I was reading that book is to do with the building of new cities, right? Industrial or otherwise. And this relates to my work at CCI with charter cities and, and new cities. I've often found that 99% of the conversation around charter cities, new cities, it focuses on formal institutions and the rule of law and formal policies on the books. And there's almost no or, or very little of the conversation is around more informal institutions and norms and how these cities can shape identity and expand sort of this moral circle of new urbanites such that they're more likely to cooperate with strangers and, and not just with kin. And I guess while there aren't enough charter cities to do a sort of rigorous social science study on this question like you did in, in your book, there are these special jurisdictions around the globe, like these thousands of special economic zones, right? These specific geographic areas given powers over commercial law in order to spur industrialization largely. Have you thought about this for future research? There's, you know, some interesting border discontinuities there with these SEZs here that I guess lend themselves to quasi-natural experiments and few people have done them. So I was just wondering if this popped into your head at all as, as you were writing the book? That's a good idea for future research. <laughs> I mean, one thing that is interesting to think about, and again, I didn't really write about this in the book, is we have attempts by various governments to create kind of ethnically neutral cities, right? So the example I mentioned in Botswana, Khabarone was created effectively because it was not, it was kind of associated with one of the Marafe or clans of the Botswana people. But it was kind of situated in a relatively neutral area. And so that means that the, it wasn't as if one particular clan could claim that land as their own and says, oh, that's our land. Again, that's not entirely true. There is elements of that there. So I think one of the lessons from talking about charter cities or SEZs is when you talk about to what degree they're created on land that is considered neutral or kind of empty in some sense, or not. I mean, the example, we know there's a long history of the capital cities being created in countries to, to try to balance out interests. You're talking right now from Washington, D.C., which is a classic example of that. I mean, we have other cases like Abuja in Nigeria or Dodoma in, in Tanzania, which are kind of created to sort of be ethnically neutral or regionally neutral in some sense. And I think 
so with the case that I didn't talk about in the book, which I just didn't have time or space to do so, is I, I do mention Uganda. Uganda's capital is not neutral. Uganda's capital is the effectively also the pre-colonial capital of the area of Buganda, the country from which the country gets its name. And there is ongoing ethnic clashes around the part, especially the area which the Kabaka, the king of the, the Baganda, has his capital in a part of, it's a part of Kampala. And to what degree Kampala is, you know, it's certainly not ethnically neutral. And so there's claims that the Baganda leadership or other people in, in Buganda will make on the city of Kampala saying, you're actually, this is actually our ethnic territory. It's not neutral. You're building this on our land, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's one of the lessons you can take away, you know, to what degree you can create a special economic zone or a charter city on a relatively neutral, let's not call it entirely neutral, but to what degree it can be relatively neutral. Again, Habarone is not entirely neutral, but it's a relatively neutral site that everybody can kind of come to, buy land in, or at least occupy land, and claim it as part of a sort of national territory, right? And where that doesn't work, that can be highly problematic. And I think that's a lesson perhaps going forward. Yeah, and I guess before the next question, self-plug, but CCI just came out with a new cities map last week that I think it's 350 cities in the data set around the world. So if you do happen to pursue this research in the future, we're happy to help out. So there are a couple debates or literatures I think that you could have gotten into that you didn't get into as much or you, you avoided altogether. So I wanted to ask about some of them. And one is the literature on trust. And I guess... In my reading of your book, you could have quite easily called it urbanization and trust as opposed to industrialization and, and assimilation. But, you know, I always have an urban bias here, right? You even begin the last chapter quoting Putnam on ethnic diversity and, and trust, but you don't really spell out the implications of your argument for intergroup trust. Was this a conscious choice or do you have plans for future research or is there some third reason? Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, an absolutely fascinating topic. And I know one of your previous guests, Leonard Wanchikon, has done a lot of interesting work on trust. And I think speaking from the perspective of development studies, I think that the more I think about it, I think trust is such an incredibly important part of what it means to be developed. Again, there's a, there's a large literature, as you know, on this and how trust is developed over time. Trust across communities, trust across strangers as an essential part of what it means to function in a capitalist society. It's, it's so incredibly important. I didn't set out not to write about trust. I think the reason perhaps why I, I didn't pick it up, though, is simply the way it can be operationalized and measured. It's really tricky, right? We can talk about, I absolutely think that that's, yes, you might have ethnically diverse societies which have high levels of trust and some which have lower levels of trust. I would imagine that the ones that have high levels of trust are also the ones where we would see more inter- ethnic marriages, and also see perhaps broader identity formation. It just, a lot of that comes down to sort of how we measure trust and how, you, how you're able to capture that in social science terms. I think that's my simple answer, but I think that's absolutely, I have done a little bit of work on inter-ethnic marriage, and I think that's something that I don't discuss that much in the book, but I think that's part of the, again, a chicken and egg question. What do we develop first? Do we develop certain processes that generate inter-ethnic marriage, and then that generates new identity formation, or is it the identity formation that's taking place already, and that allows for inter-ethnic marriages to happen? That's something, again, I'd, I'd like to look at a bit more in the future. And this is, I guess, then kind of similar to the last question on trust, but there's also a pretty big literature on this markets make us moral hypothesis, right? You know, Montesquieu writes about dues commerce and gentle mores, and commerce going hand in hand. I think Albert Hirschman wrote about this topic a lot in Passions and the Interests. 
Fukuyama wrote a book called Trust that's largely on this topic. So is it fair to conclude from your work that you're sort of in agreement with or sympathetic to this markets make us moral hypothesis? Yeah, this is where I definitely agree that, like I mentioned before about people like Chang saying that industrialization has kind of become a bit of a dirty word, again, almost literally because of the issues around pollution. I think that, yes, the idea that we can have functioning markets and and that that can actually take place in a in a non-laissez-faire fashion, I think that's extremely important. I think that's part of the story that I don't want to generalize too much, but the idea that we have this shift that Chang talks about, the way that industrializations become perhaps less important over time, or at least since the shift took place perhaps in the 70s and 80s, and it's become slightly downgraded in terms of priorities, at least among donors. I think that, yes, that, that's part of that story, that promoting you know markets and industrialization in, in a positive way is definitely important within development studies. And there's a large literature, you mentioned some important authors there, there's also Joran Hidden, his work on Tanzania from the 1970s and 1980s has written a lot about the problems of establishing markets and in, in cross-cultural contexts. And I think that's, yeah, especially when, within Africa, that's an incredibly important topic. Hmm. And then another topic I was surprised didn't come up more often is decentralization, mainly because a lot of your academic work is around decentralization. There's been this big wave, as you know, of decentralization reforms since the 1990s. Some places obviously implemented much more effectively than others. And, you know, this is especially relevant, I think, in, in your region of expertise in Africa, right, where there's this history of artificially drawn borders that have lumped together previously antagonistic ethnic groups into one state, or they have divided previously related ethnic groups into multiple states. So to what extent can redrawing internal subnational borders through decentralization, such that those borders are then more congruent with prevailing patterns of group settlement, to what extent can that affect assimilation or, or ethnic change? Uh, yes, that's, a, again, a good question. I think one of the works that I try to engage with in the book is David Layton wrote a book, Nation, States, and Violence, I think about 10, 15 years ago. And one of the things he talks about in the conclusion is how do we, so we have this evidence that ethnic diversity can be bad for a variety of outcomes, growth, conflict, democracy, etc. So he says, how do we deal with that in a peaceful way? I mean, one way is to just go out and kill people and make everybody homogenous or force them to adopt identity. We don't want to do that, right? That's not the right way to do that. We also don't want to have low growth. We don't want to have conflict, right? What he says in that book is that we can try to promote decentralization. We can try to federalism, some sort of promotion of local governments and draw borders internally within countries to make countries more, at least make local jurisdictions and local governments more homogenous. So ethnically diverse countries, but local jurisdictions more homogenous, right? So that we can eliminate some of the problems of ethnic diversity in a peaceful manner. So that, that's his idea. And I, my response to that is to some degree that we could also just promote more industrialization and generating more you know, assimilation, voluntaristic assimilation in that sense would actually also help to generate broader processes of assimilation that would lead to lower levels of diversity without forcing people to change their identities and without redrawing government jurisdictions. My other response to that is, I already mentioned the Gellner and Marx comparison and how Gellner, I think, is more explicitly bottom-up than Marx. The other thing I, I like about Gellner is the degree to which we talk about um, processes by which industrialization is very uneven. I think you know Marx talks about this too, but one of the things that makes Gellner really fascinating is that he recognizes that it's rare to have 
industrialization that's evenly spread across a country. There's rare examples, I think, where it does happen. I think I mentioned this in passing uh, is France. France is an interesting example where the country is not entirely evenly distributed. Industrialization is not entirely evenly distributed, but relative to other parts of the world, it actually is. And I think that's one of the points you get when you read. You mentioned Eugene Weber before. But for the most part, it's uneven. And so, you know, we generate growth in some areas and not in others. And so people move from one area to the other. And we could try to draw government boundaries, according local government boundaries, according to that uneven nature. But of course, that's always a sort of a moving target. I think that's one of the things to keep in mind is that when generating growth or industrialization in one country, then we will we'll have to adjust for the fact that there will be a lot of internal migration. And I think that's one of the things you observe all around the world is that people will move to where there are jobs. And when the industrialization takes place for often very geographic reasons in terms of access to ports or access to natural resources, then there will be migration. And you have to account for the fact that ethnic diversity will change across time. And even if you try to draw local government boundaries the way that Leighton talks about, it will change because demographics will change. It's a moving target, and it's often a very difficult thing to get right. I guess maybe to defend Leighton for a bit, maybe his pushback on what you just said would be that Sure, industrialization would be a great and neutral way to bring about growth without sacrificing other things. But in order to start industrializing, there needs to be some threshold level of cooperation and kind of trust and all the things that we're talking about, right? So in order to get that threshold level, some kind of redrawing or something of what along the lines of what Leighton suggested might be necessary. Yeah, no, I, I don't doubt that. I'm simplifying David's argument to some degree. And I also think that you mentioned before in our conversation, people like Danny Roderick and the idea that industrialization has changed over time. It's one thing that I, I don't want to be nostalgic for, the idea that we can replicate the experiences of 19th century England today in the 21st century. No, that's not possible. I mean, there's a lot of first mover advantages that Europe had that other countries don't have, especially, as we know, in terms of competing for low wage Manufacturing growth is really difficult, especially when now it's been taken up by extremely high populated countries like Bangladesh, India, China, you know, African countries in particular are really struggling to compete with those countries simply because of scale issues. That wasn't the case in the 19th century. So I, I don't have any rose tinted glasses as far as that goes. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. The title of the book is Industrialization Assimilation. And I do talk about processes of industrialization but one thing that I will admit to saying is I don't focus a lot because I think there's a lot of literature already out there about how industrialization has changed. And I mentioned Roderick and a bunch of other people who are talking about you know, increasing on, on the value chain and, and how we deal with small scale versus large scale manufacturing. There's a lot of literature out there, which I'd recommend to listeners to look at about the history of industrialization and how it's, again, I mentioned cases like Ethiopia, a lot of literature just on industrialization in Ethiopia. I think that's really important to keep track of is how the nature of industrialization has changed over time and how countries are adapting to that in a successful way, sometimes successful way. And last question here, you, you just kind of looked back at the history of, of industrialization. I want to look ahead a bit in time. So humanity, it's in its sort of last wave of urbanization, right? We'll add an estimated 5 billion people or so to the world's cities this century, and then the urban population and really the overall world population will is said to be stabilizing. So in a world like that, what does your model imply, right? Does this world in which urbanization is complete, 
does it take away one of the key or, or perhaps in your view, the main mechanism that human beings have used to transition from more limited, narrow, traditional identities to more broad, universal identities? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would say two things. First of all, yes, we're still getting there. But you're right. My story is basically industrialization is a process. It has a beginning and an end in a very broad sense of the word. The idea that countries go from being unindustrialized or not industrialized to being industrialized. Once they're industrialized, they basically reach some level of stasis in terms of their level of industrialization, right? And same thing for urbanization. As you know, they go from being, I mentioned Botswana being 4% urban or whatever, it will reach a level at some point where it basically will stop increasing or the level of increase, the rate of increase will slow down significantly. It already has started to slow down, right? So countries like Britain, Canada, US, they still continue to urbanize, but it, you know, as you know, at a very, very small rate, they basically remain stable. And that will effectively mean that in the broad sense of what I'm talking about in the book, that process will start to come to an end, right? That's a process by which countries industrialize, that's changing identities. And once that has played out, then that process will kind of stop. However, and this is again, something I don't really go into the book, but since you're asking about it, it's interesting to speculate. We know that what kind of people live in cities and what kind of people live in the countryside in developed countries. And a lot of that is an age difference, right? So that people, I mentioned already about in Botswana, people, you know, might get their funerals are in the countryside and they live, they get married in the cities. And that, I mean, that's true in, in developed countries too, right? People grow up, where would they grow up? The ambitious ones who want to go out and have a great career, they don't tend to stay in the countryside. They go off to big cities. They go off to cities and, and earn, they get educated and they earn their incomes, and that's where the economic dynamism is. I remember you, you studied here at the LSE, one of our now retired professors in the department, Tim Dyson, as a demographer, used to say, any interest in, the, in global history is only taking place in cities. You know, he'd say things like that. The idea that all these great ideas that we have in terms of all the, you know, technological or, or other kind of ideas that transform the world in which we live come from cities. Those are young people, especially, who are generating those ideas. And the idea that if you still have rural, urban, even if the level of urbanization remains the same, part of that is that churning whereby people are born in the countryside and then they come to cities and then the old people who live in cities retire and they go back to the countryside, right? So that, as I said, in that kind of hypothetical example, which is not hypothetical, it actually is happening in developed countries today, I think that we still might still see, see that process of assimilation on a smaller scale but in terms of generational differences, so that these people who come from different backgrounds from the countryside go to the city and they perhaps mix a bit more and you form broader identity formations. But then as, they're, as they get old and retire, then they might move back to the countryside. So that, that is, again, not that's something outside the bounds of the book, but I think that's something that you may observe to some degree already happening in developed countries and might continue to happen more on a global scale into the future. Okay, well, that's all the questions I had for today. Elliot Green, thanks a lot for the great discussion. Appreciate it. Thank you, Curtis. This was a great chat. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. <laughs>